said, I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you for a reason, and that is to be a blessing to the nations. Welcome back to this episode of Sound Faith. It's a real, real blessing to be here with you. Um, I, I must make a confession. This is my first time with this congregation, and uh, I'm very sad about that. And I'm very happy to be here with you. I feel like I have lots of really, really good friends here in this group. And we, this morning on the way down, we came over the mountains past Roxbury Campground, and, and uh, we were doing a little bit of reminiscing about that. We didn't get to do that this year because of COVID. And uh, as, I can, as I'm hearing, COVID is still around. It's alive and well in this area and as well as back in our area as well. So I'm very thankful, thankful to be here with you and that we can meet in person and not on Zoom um, and, uh, fe- and fellowship together. So looking forward to, yeah, been blessed by the service already in many, many ways. So for a message this, this evening, this morning, I'd like us to think about the world and what is happening around us and what is the answer to that. Um, as we know, our, our world is, is so broken currently. Um, how many of us uh, a year ago could have imagined the different dynamics that are happening in our world right now? How many of us would have imagined that? Whether it be the election, whether it be health, even globally, um, many, many things going on. Just recently read an article that said uh, by the end of this year or coming into 2021, there's approximately 150 million more people that are critically poor that live on less than $2 a day. And a lot of this has to do with, with the coronavirus and those dynamics. So we live in a world that is exceedingly broken, and many people are realizing it, which gives us much opportunity. Nationally, we, we face lots of rhetoric. Um, lots of, of opposition, separation, people buying into certain narratives that divide. Um, there's powerful people who are, who are forwarding those narratives, whether within the church, sadly, or even within politics and, and other, other story, other narratives. And there's much division, much hate. Um, last night across the nation, there was numerous um, protests, and some of them were pretty, pretty violent. Um, lots, lots of things that call for followers of Jesus. And Brother Bill appreciated your Sunday school lesson and looking at Jesus and who he is and calling us to try to follow his, his methods. And it's right down the line that I want to speak about this evening. On the way down here, a brother sent me a recording of a song. He just held his phone, phone up to the, to the uh, speaker and, and played a couple of verses. And I think he knew it was my favorite song. And it's, it's the, the song called, O Healing River, Send Down Your Water. And that really resonated in my heart. Send down your water upon this land. O healing river, send down your water. And wash the blood from off the sand. This land is parching. This land is thirsty. No seed is growing on the barren ground. O healing river, send your water down. I thought of the verses there in, in John 4, beautiful picture where Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. He doesn't look down on her. He even speaks to her, a woman, 
outside the box for a Jewish man to do that, a Samaritan outside the box. And he says this to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we, we stand this morning in celebration, uh, whether in our hearts or physically, celebrating the, the resurrection of Jesus, this one who, who came and walked on earth and showed us this beautiful picture of the new humanity, who taught us the ways to, to walk and then showed us by absorbing the horrible death on the cross and rose again the third day, inaugurating this, this kingdom that is around the world, that is growing, that is spreading, this kingdom where there's life, where there's healing. And Father, this morning we just ask, Lord, that you would send down that water and heal the land. And Father, that, that it would be through your methods and not through ours. Just guide and direct this message, Lord. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what is the answer to our world today? We know that it's Jesus. It's the one who came to this earth. It's the one we've just been reading about. It's the one we've been thinking about uh, in, in, in Isaiah 25, uh, in, in the words of the New Testament we're reading this morning in Sunday school class, Brother Bill. It's, it's Jesus. But what does it look like? How do we actually bring this life, this healing water to bear in my life, to bear in our congregations, to bear in this world? How, what does that look like? And I want to do just a quick overview um, through Scripture, um, like really quick overview. As we know, God created the garden, a beautiful, perfect place, and he put a man and a woman there to rule that, to tend the garden, and they chose to not follow the ways of God. And sin came, and they were pushed out of the garden. And we can fast forward on up into um, later in Genesis, into Genesis 12, there were, or Genesis 11, actually 12, where, where God chooses a man, he chooses Abraham to be uh, his, this, this man who was going to um, bring a prosperity, bring a people that was going to be like the sands of the sea. And God gave, him a, God gave Abraham a commission there. He said, I'm going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you for a reason, and that is to be a blessing to the nations. And as we know, um, God chose, chose Abraham not only maybe for salvation, but for service to be a light to the world, to show the world who, who, who God is, to be his, his children. And then we know the story of the Israelites and the failures and even some of the high points, as someone pointed out this morning, Joseph. Um, but for the most part, a, a people who walked away, who walked away from God. And then we jump ahead a couple thousand years to, to Jesus coming, uh, arriving on the scene, and, and as we heard this morning, preaching the kingdom of God. And I, I know that this congregation here is, is a congregation that's been well taught uh, in, in the kingdom of God. We know that that was a theme. We believe that. That was a theme of Jesus' teaching uh, on his, in his ministry here. And then through his enthronement on the cross and the resurrection, he inaugurated that kingdom of God on earth. Um, and then coming right on into Acts, Acts 1 uh, that before his ascension, it says that he taught, he was teaching his disciples the things that were, that pertains to the kingdom of God. And then at the other book end of Acts, we see Paul. What is he doing there in that house where he's under house arrest? It says that he's 
preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern Jesus Christ with all confidence. But I have a question for you. What is the kingdom of God? What does that look like? Is it some kind of virtual reality that we've got to put on special glasses to see here? Is it some kind of nebulous pie in the sky? Um, is it some monks in a monastery in the mountains philosophizing about what this looks like? What is, what is the kingdom of God? What does that look like on earth? And how is the kingdom of God, if Jesus taught that with all his life and showed that, and if the apostles taught that, what does that look like today? How does the kingdom of God come to bear uh, in our lives, in, in our, in our, in our um, communities, and in the world? And turn with me to Acts 2. We'll look at this very familiar but beautiful passage of the kingdom of God on earth. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as everyone had need. So continued daily with one accord in the temple, and the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and with simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily. And we see here this kingdom of God on earth coming about. And it's, it's through people who've decided to follow Jesus. And they come together and they, they eat their food. Uh, thank you. David, they eat their food with gladness, with simplicity of heart. They praise God. And we know that God used these people in so many amazing ways. We would take the time to hop to Acts 4 and on through the book of Acts and on into the, into the, the epistles. We just see communities of believers, kingdom communities, living out their lives with faithful practice. And that's my title for my message this morning. What is the answer for the world? The answer for our world is cultivating Kingdom communities of faithful practice. As many of you know, the, the quote that John D. likes to say, Jesus wants a society of redeemed people to show the world what the whole world would look like if everybody would obey the king. And we see that just through, through the, the, the acts of the epistles, this teaching, this one anothering, this focus on a community walking together living together, and through that, not only embracing and not only displaying, but proclaiming the kingdom of God through these local churches, these local, uh, these local um, communities. There's, a, there's a, a, a couple paragraphs I'd like to read in this one book here um, that talks about the early church and how they changed the world. Um, so as we know, uh, in, in, the, in the Roman Empire, the, the, the early Christians reached out to so many people and they made an incredible impact. And I just want to read here um, a couple paragraphs that talk about how the early church changed the world. Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population densities, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, collapsing buildings, and frequent illnesses and plagues. 
life expectancy at birth was, birth was less than 30 years and probably substantially less. The only way for cities to avoid complete depopulation from morality was for there to be a constant influx of immigrants, a very fluid situation that contributed to urban chaos, deviant behavior, and social instability. Rather than fleeing these urban cesspools, the early church found its niche there. Stark explains the Christian concept of self-sacrificial love of others emanating from God's love for them was a revolutionary concept of the pagan mind, which viewed the extension of mercy as an emotional act to be avoided by rational people. So that was a pagan mind at the time. Hence, paganism provided no ethical foundation to justify caring for the sick and the destitute who were trampled by the teeming urban masses. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing, a new, providing new norms and new kinds of relationships able to cope with many, urban, with many urgent urban problems. Two cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. Two cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. Two cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. Two cities torn by violence and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And two cities filled with, with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. And did these uh, early Christians, did they organize uh, all kinds of parachurch ministries to, to fill, to accomplish these tasks? I think the answer is no. It was done just by people like you and I, people like congregations like this congregation, just reaching out and serving and serving others. The Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the fourth century, regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. He said, atheists, which he's talking of Christians here, um, the pagans obviously worship lots of gods, and these Christians only worship one god and didn't worship idols, and so they were atheists in their minds, have been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, and the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Are the folks in Chambersburg saying that about Chamber, Chamber Christian Fellowship? I don't doubt they are. I, I sat with Patrick Matthews over here in the corner at the little Thai restaurant one day, and I don't think there was a soul that came along that didn't know, didn't know Patrick, and he ministered to them. But it's a challenge for us. Do your neighbors, whether you're in Chambersburg or out in the, in the country, do they know, think of you as people who are loving and serving others? So we love talking about the early church. We love talking about this idea of, of breaking bread and, and fellowship and, and prayer and we, we tend to have this kind of this romanticized view, and we like talking about it. But there's no doubt that it is hard. It is a life, it's a life of sacrifice. And today, 
how are we going to follow in the footsteps of these early Christians? How are we going to do that? Are we going to follow the methods and, and, and their example to us? Follow the methods of Jesus as they follow them as they follow Jesus? Or are we going to buy into other methods or other ways of how we think could change the world? And, and, and that's one of my concerns for today. I believe that there's so many narratives that are coming at us uh, from so many different areas of, of, of the Christian world especially. And some of them can sound so right. And as we know, it's very difficult sometimes to, when something is so close to right, to determine what is false and what is true. And I, and I believe that if there was ever a time for a clarion call to a two-kingdom concept, to a two-kingdom framework, that it's today. Where there is no vision, the people perish. There's this quote that I love that goes like this, a vision without a task is but a dream. A task without a vision is but a drudgery. A vision and a task is the hope of the world. And I believe that Jesus and his kingdom is that incredible vision that we can press into. And as we see Jesus just following his footsteps, doing the things that he did, and as we look at the early church, it gives us the task. And when you merge those two together, a vision and a task, it's the hope of the world. I would like to lay out just three paradigms that I believe um, affect us today. Uh, the two are, are from the Christian world, outside of us. And then the third one is maybe like a vision statement for us as kingdom Christians. So three different paradigms within the Christian world. Number one paradigm that, that comes at us quite a bit is from the conservative evangelical churches and their methods. And it maybe goes like this. Through preaching the truth from a pulpit, convincing people of it, so it's very apologetical or even confrontational, and heavily intellectual, and through the use of national politics, God would change the world. And so I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm painting with a broad brushstroke. I'm talking about the conservative evangelical church and kind of their way, their method maybe of how they see changing the world. And the emphasis there is on powerful preaching, maybe just a Sunday morning service and not much life together outside of that, and using Gentile role, using politics, power from above, down to keep you know, American Christian or whatever is their goal. Then the second paradigm is uh, progressive evangelical churches and their method. Uh, maybe it, it, it can go somewhat like this, through bringing awareness of social injustice and through the use of national politics, God would change the world. And there their, their emphasis is on maybe public action, uh, demonstrations, protests, awareness initiatives, uh, social action, and also Gentile role, just like the conservative Christians, again, using politics as a way maybe to kind of develop their notion or their theory. So maybe, maybe that's two, two paradigms that affect us a lot today that come at us. The third paradigm is what uh, I, I believe that you here at Chambersburg Christian Fellowship um, are trying to do, and by God's grace and, and at State College we're trying to do, um, and, that's, and, and that goes like this, um, maybe some, somewhat like this. Again, broad brushstrokes, but just trying to, trying to put some, some meat on, on a skeleton here. Uh, number three, uh, kingdom-focused churches' methods. Um, and it, it's maybe a lot like the early church, hopefully, by God's grace, in the pilgrim church up through the ages. Think of the Waldensians, Anabaptists, Lollards, people who, who were um, maybe called Sermon on the Mount Christians. 
And it could go like this. Uh, through cultivating communities of faithful practice under the role of King Jesus, engaging and serving people through personal relationships or one-on-one interaction, calling them to come and participate in the living body of disciples, and through that, being a proclamation for the kingdom of God. And we believe in that way, God would change the world. And the emphasis there maybe is, 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 is maybe broader, possibly, hopefully. Um, the idea of being a witness, being a presence in a community, of living, doing life together, um, not only word, not only word, but also action, um, community, uh, understanding ourselves as, as, as citizens of, a, of another, another country, the idea of, of really um, bringing our home turf you know, onto foreign soil, that two-kingdom framework that, that we see um, taught so well um, through, through Scripture, through the early church, and, th- and through the teachings, teachings of Jesus. So which, which narrative are we going to listen to um, is, is a question I'd like to leave with us. What is, what is the way that God wants us to walk? And you can decide. And, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm painting a very broad brushstroke. But I would like to, I'd like to go into five points uh, in, in practical points of cultivating um, kingdom communities of faithful practice. Uh, there's tons of more points, but it's five that I thought of um, that I'd like to talk about. But this morning, I've actually preached this message at our church. Um, that, but this morning, as I was working through these five points, I thought, I need five points that we don't want to be like. Um, sometimes when you juxtapose um, some points together, you can, it maybe makes it a clearer picture Let's do this. That's great. We can talk about vision and direction all day, but sometimes we need to say, let's not do this. And maybe, in, maybe this morning I, had, I was kind of gripping my teeth a little bit. I, I see so many, um, so many things around me that, that, that I just feel like is not the heart of Christ, is not the way of the kingdom. And so you have to be, you know, forgive me if I um, am a little bit um, hard this morning. But So five points, just real quick, of what we don't want to be, uh, what we need to reject, and then we'll get into the positive what I think we want to cultivate. So number one of what we want to reject is reject isolationism. So many, um, all of us here are from, I mean, a lot of us are from Anabaptist background, not everybody. Um, most of us here would consider ourselves Anabaptists, not everybody probably. But as we know, um, as we look at our history, we see people who, who at the beginning, um, as someone has said, were willing to storm the gates of hell, be like the early church, and to go into the world and be that presence uh, and see the world change through through the power of the, of the Holy Spirit and through people following, being disciples. But sadly, we've, we've pulled back from that. We became people, people of, the, of, the, of the country. Um, fill lanes have intrigued us for, for way too long. Uh, I sometimes have used this, these three words, uh, the three Ps, um, plants, um, places, and, and products maybe have, have really consumed us rather than people. And so we've we become very materialistic and we pull back away from maybe those urban centers. Somebody's excited to come to your congregation here this, this morning and, and be right here in the center of Chambersburg. And I know that you have many different things that are going on here, but we need to keep that in front of us. We have to reject isolation, isolationism and move inward towards people to be that, that presence and live, live among people. Um, second point is reject, reject meism, or maybe it could be called meology or whatever. Um, the idea of the, what's taught so much is, is get saved, avoid hell, you know, get your ticket for heaven, which I know 
which is such an impoverished gospel. When you think about the gospel of the kingdom, how we get to actually live it out today, uh, or, the, or the kingdom epiphany that Dean Taylor talks about, I can witness that uh, when a brother from uh, my congregation, uh, former congregation, uh, 12, 13 years ago, I began to teach on the kingdom of God, and it was just like lights were turning on. Oh, this is for right now. It's not for something in the future. We get to live this out now, and it gave me this purpose and vision. Um, and so, but it's not meism. It's not about me. It's about Jesus, our King, and His kingdom. And it just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's an epiphany. Um, I'm reading a book right now. I should just got done last night. I got it on Friday, and I, I sat down and just consumed it. Couldn't get away from it. Um, it's called John. Nugent, uh, Endangered Gospel, How Fixing the World is Killing the Church. Powerful book. But he says this, the most dangerous religion is not Islam, nor is atheism, or if we want to call that a religion. The most dangerous religion is a form of Christianity that uses the name of Jesus to keep people happy and healthy, but doesn't call them into a form of fellowship that showcases God's kingdom before a watching world. So we need to reject meism. Next thing, third one. We've got to keep moving along here. Uh, reject patriotism. Again, I'm thankful to be talking to a congregation that understands the kingdom of God and does, hasn't bought into those, those narratives of, of the, the right, of the moral majority, etc. We need to see love of this country as idolatry. Call it this country. Don't call it our country. Um, just real quickly, I want to read here in Endangered Gospel. Um, couple paragraphs here. This brother, he's an evangelical, but he has got a view of the kingdom in ways I haven't rarely read uh, in those circles. Christians who choose not to get deeply entangled in the political affairs of their host nation are not simply lazy, unloving, or irresponsible, nor are they attempting to dishonor the blood that was shed by those who fought to establish the various nations we live in. They are honoring the blood that Christ shed as well as those Christian martyrs who followed in steps. These martyrs traded worldly domination for the reign of God and, by refusing to worship the rulers of the nations, bore witness to the trans-territorial eternal kingdom of which we are now a part. Since the mission of God's people entails forming communities that embody Jesus' alternate or all-compassing politics precisely for the world's sake, then focusing on our mission is not lazy, unloving, irresponsible, or ungrateful. It is rightly ordered action, love, responsibility, and gratitude. Since it is God's strategy for blessing all nations, it is the best way to preserve whatever is good and worth dying for in this world. Those who reject God's strategy or merge it with the world's strategies by making yet another pointless run at ruling the nations are the ones who are acting irresponsibly. So we need to reject patriotism. Number four, reject fundamental, fundamentalism and its children. One of those is dispensationalism. We need to reject those things. The other day, um, I was in, the, in our cafe there, and there's a good fr- uh, a gentleman who comes in on Friday mornings often and works from our cafe, works for Penn State. And so he's working in the cafe on his, on his laptop. He and I ended up having a lot of conversations. He's been coming for five years now. And he's, in a, he's an atheist. Um, and one of the things that has made him an atheist is, is a conservative right, is uh, this, uh, this idea that somehow through law we're going to coerce people to become Christians, and it has turned them away from Christianity. 
when he learned uh, that these religious folks at sowers don't vote, it really upset the fruit basket. He couldn't believe it. He's like, you don't vote. I said, no, we don't. And I've been telling about the kingdom of God and has just made incredible opportunity for he and I to dialogue because he's not threatened by me. He realizes that I'm never going to force him to do anything. Anyhow, just the other morning, he, I came into the cafe, and uh, incidentally, it was right before um, Anabaptist Perspectives did a, did a whole thing on fundamentalism. It was like a day or two before. And I didn't bring it up to him, but he, he said, hey, he said, I just got done listening to a podcast on fundamentalism. I said, what? He said, yeah, I just got done listening to it. And he said, I said, well, I would love to listen to it. So he sent it to me. I listened to it. We back and forth on it some. But basically, this, this podcast was just talking about the issues of fundamentalism and how it has affected us for the last couple hundred years and has really took the Christians from this idea of a separate nation to trying to get involved to change the U.S. through politics. And, uh, and also he went into John Darby and dispensationalism, how that has affected it. It was, it was, it was really eye-opening uh, for me. So we need to reject those things, this angry Christian. Uh, we need to reject that um, for something so much better, so much more wholesome and flourishing. And that is um, calling people into a kingdom of God, embracing the kingdom of God, displaying it, and proclaiming it. And then finally, uh, reject racism. Um, Paul said in Acts 17, 26, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of the dwelling places. And we know that, um, we know that scripture that teaches us clearly. In the example of the early church, there were people of multi-ethnic. There was, there, was, there was not racism there. But sadly, we struggle with that in our world today. We, we live under sin and the curse. But we need to reject racism. We need to consider that my, our, my feelings, the way I respond to those of different ethnicity, different cultures, and ask ourselves why. And really um, try to align ourselves with the heart of, of our king. So that was my five points that we need to reject. Let's move into five points that we need to cultivate. Um, number one, we cultivate communities of faithful practice by pursuing a love-faith relationship with Jesus. And so many times, um, as, as Christians, as Anabaptist Christians, we can have a, a form of godliness, but we deny the power. And we want to see the world change. So many of us do. I do. I want to see the world change. And so many times I forget that change starts with me. Leo Tolstoy said, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And isn't that what Jesus did? He came. He came. And he, he, he wanted to see the law that was on, on tablets of stone printed, placed deep on the tablets of our heart. He knew that our, own, our worst enemy is our own selves. So he came preaching the kingdom of God, calling people to repent and turn and to follow this new and living, living way. John 15, verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. How do we abide in Jesus, um, in our King? when life is so busy. I don't know if your lives are, are, are anything like ours in State College. I'm sure they are. Um, but they're just busy. There's just a lot of things to do. Um, how do we take time to abide in Jesus? I know that um, having frequent uh, Lord's Supper communion 
times of remembering uh, is also just so important, remembering who Jesus is, who our King is, what he's done for us, and who we are uh, in light of that. So we need to renew our love for Jesus. If we do not have that love with Jesus, there will not be kingdom communities of faithful practice. We need to fall at his feet and be like him, become like him, allow him to fill us with his spirit, allow him to to work in our hearts, confessing our sins with one another, and we'll be healed. Number two of, of our five points on cultivating community, we cultivate communities of faithful practice by prioritizing our community. Now, it's so easy for us to want that relationship with Jesus, but it's so hard for us to prioritize community because that means work, and that means relating with people that are broken just like me, relating with people who cross me, relating with people who I just don't sometimes feel like relating to. And this, is, this convicts me. I, you know, so many times we have so many good things going on. Like we can reach out, we can do all these good things, but am I prioritizing community? And that's something that this brother here really, really pushes on. Uh, he pushes back against all this busyness of trying to fix the world and says, really, as you look at Scripture, it's, it's really clear that we are called first and foremost to put our all into our local community, to one another and to loving each other, to walking with each other, to sharing with each other. Um, and, and he calls it actually prioritizing our community. What did Jesus say in John 13? I think maybe even someone read it this morning in, in, the, in the Sunday school class. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Of course, John 17, there's verses there in that prayer, the Lord's Prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, loved them even as you've loved me. So part of following Jesus is embracing, is um, embracing, is uh, proclaiming the kingdom of God through the local church. And there's tons of one another in verses uh, in, in the epistles. Um, just three real quick. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other since love covers a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.10 Above, uh, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. John Nugent says this, since loving one another is God's plan, it must become our highest priority. No more embarrassment, no more second guessing, no more imitating worldly strategies to make this world a better place. They have failed and will continue to fail. The old order is passing away, as in like the, the, the nations of this world, the way of controlling and, and kind of keeping a semblance of order. That's passing away. Only God's kingdom will stand. New creation is everything. 
Nothing is more arrogant and self-serving than assuming that we know better than God what is the best for his world. If God's strategy requires a, if God's strategy requires a people whose life together reflects his kingdom, then any other strategy is apostasy, and any doctrine that competes with it, heresy. He doesn't beat on the bush. He, this, this brother believes that the way we're going to change the world is through churches just like you, through local bodies of believers working together, uh, embracing uh, and proclaiming. So just a couple of little practical challenges. How do we live this out uh, in our lives? I've thought a lot about this. My wife and I have lived in urban setting uh, ever since we got married back in 2008. And how do we show the world a community and not just an insular family? Just our family. How do we show that to the world? And it's something, you know, we've tried different things. And in, in, uh, in State College, we've been blessed to live somewhat in, within proximity of each other and try to do life together maybe in more ways than, than maybe is typical. Uh, we've had some, some successes in that. Definitely can have lots of growth in that for sure. Um, but what if, what if we would try to have someone from our congregation to our place, round table for a meal, like maybe every other week or once a month or every week, whatever. What if we would try to do that, have people into our place around our table where we can get to know them and talk over a meal? And what if we would consider Sundays being out? It's pretty easy to do this stuff on Sunday, right? Any social club you know, can have one day of the week that we just kind of do stuff together. But what if we try to do it more throughout the week? randomly. Sundays are out. Try to, six days when we have, when can we have a family from our congregation in to our home? Hosting is hard, hard work, as we all know. Hospitality is hard work. Trying to get our congregation outside the four walls of the building that we meet in. Just earlier this week, uh, my son, we were, doing, we were splitting firewood, and he went from splitting firewood, splitting his finger. And you can ask him to at least show it. He, he won't be able to get out of the bandage. But it's a pretty, pretty bad deal. And um, we had the incredible privilege of, of, a, of a community to help us. And what a blessing that was. Uh, we live on our street. There are three houses up. There's a family that lives from our congregation. There's a single that lives above them. Uh, in our house, there's a, a single brother, Chinese brother, who lives below us. And they all hopped in and helped in different ways. We're asking how they can help. And our neighbors happened to be outside, and they realized what was going on, and, you know, trading. We were trying to get him off to the hospital really quick. And um, so it was, it, was a, it was a way that uh, I hope that somehow our neighbors caught that, that glimpse of the kingdom, of people living together and helping each other out. God help us. I, I have more questions and answers in this area, um, but how can we cultivate communities of faith? We, we cultivate communities of faithful practice by prioritizing our local community. And that is the way that God wants to change the world. Number three, we cultivate communities of faithful practice by dreaming. We need to allow the Jesus way to stoke our imagination. And we've gotten so caught up. We can dream well when it comes to business and when it comes to arts and crafts, um, music, whatever. We, we've, we've dreamt really well. That latte art, whatever it is, I pick on myself. Um, we love dreaming, and it's wonderful. But let's begin dreaming again uh, when it comes to how we could bring heaven to earth uh, in our communities. One of the, my favorite 
uh, phrases of Jesus is where he says this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This, what an irrational thought of God of heaven coming that idea, that, that dream, and then actually doing it, living it out. We know that he did. Um, in Acts 2, uh, when Peter stands up and gives that incredible, incredible message, he quotes Joel 2.28, and it says this, um, and it shall come in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall, shall see dreams. And I never forget the day I listened to a message of Dean Taylor. And he says, sadly, he says, in our day, men, old men have become cynical and young men are fantasizing. We need renewal. We need the Spirit of God to fall on us afresh. And we need to begin dreaming again. How are some practical ways of doing that? Um, the Waldensians were known as people, they were called Sermon on the Mount Christians. Recently, I found read a book, Under a Silent Sky. CLP just put it out about the Waldensians. Powerful book of, of them. I can't, can't recommend that book more to read as a family. But they were people who lived in community and lived it well and lived it the Jesus way. And they were men who, who just soaked up the Sermon on the Mount. Someone has said, let's be as passionate about the Sermon on the Mount as some people are about the amendments. Let's be as passionate about the Sermon on the Mount as some people are about the amendments. Let's look for ways to bring heaven to earth. And I don't think we're going to take the time here. Uh, maybe we will. Uh, but let's just jump to uh, Acts 9, the, the story there of of, uh, of Tabitha or, or Dorcas. Incredible passage, or incredible couple, couple of verses that we can so quickly overlook. But here is a sister who was dreaming. Uh, here's a sister who was serving. And what's interesting is um, there's... There's a Greek word that's used here to, to describe a female disciple that's not used anywhere um, anywhere in the, in the New Testament again. And, and so what, what, what caused, for what reason was this lady described in this beautiful, beautiful way? Um, in verse 36 of... of, of uh, of Acts 9. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. As we can see on down there, the, uh, she died, and the widow stood by, by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Here, this lady was serving widows, poor people, by just the simple work of being a seamstress. She was dreaming. She, was, she allowed the ways of Jesus to inflame her imagination enough that she actually was willing to do the work of, of making garments and laboring for these, these dear people. Tim Mackey says this, Bible Project, it takes a transformation of your imagination to see it and embrace Jesus' upside-down kingdom. We need to ask God to illuminate our minds, to remove the fantasizing, to remove that cynical spirit. Say, Lord, what can I do with the talents, with, with uh, the things that you've given me? 
the, the resources. What can I do to steward it for your kingdom? And finally, a quote from N.T. Wright, my, one of my favorite quotes. Our primary task, our primary task is not so much to give answers to impossible philosophical questions as to bring signs of God's new world to birth. And that gives me a lot of hope because, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, an apologist. I, have, I, I can't interact with my atheist friend and women argument. He's so good. He's got something like every argument's covered. I, I can't do it. But what I can do is be kind to him, is be kind to him and show him um, love and show him that I'm, not, I'm never going to force him to do anything. That I'm going to radically follow Jesus and try to, sh- every day when he comes in, to be kind and gentle to him. We all can do this. We all can bring signs of God's new word to birth. It doesn't matter whether you're a child, who you are in this audience, we can do that. Okay, number four. Moving on here, we cultivate communities of faith practice by joyfully stewarding, stewarding our daily occupations for kingdom advance joyfully stewarding our daily occupations. I think so many times um, as kingdom Christians, we, we want to try to, we somehow think like some special ministry or, or something is, is where it's at, but that's just not the way of the kingdom. That could be a way, but really it's just like Dorcas laboring over, you know, sewing a garment. It's just like Paul staying up late at night laboring over a tent so that he can minister is taking those things that God's given us um, and stewarding it for, for his kingdom, whether it be a mother in the home, which is so important, or a father or a carpenter, whatever it might be, just joyfully stewarding it for the kingdom and watching for a way to, to share Jesus with them in word. And oftentimes we can do it in action very effectively if we um, allow God to work in our lives. I remember the early Anabaptists, I think, you know, they said, hey, so what, what do you do? And they would say, or what do you do for the kingdom? It was, was kind of a, a question. Um, I mean, we, we say, well, what do you do for a living? Or sometimes our, our occupation they really define us possibly too much. And so um, we need to make sure that, that we're not allowing our occupations to become an idol to us, but yet just confidently, joyfully stewarding our occupations for, for the kingdom. And when people see that, they see us uh, joyfully doing that, just doing the, the hard work of, of making the dollar, um, of then you know using that to bless others and serve others. Uh, it really, really speaks to people. Work, work can be holy, and I think just a real, real quick little story. Um, two years ago, I was in Africa to visit a team there with all nations, and this one brother on that team, um, he's. He would be the first one to tell you, I'm not an apologist. I'm not a Bible translator. Um, I, I'm just, I'm not gifted in that way. But here's what he's doing. He's taken his um, knowledge of, of vehicle diagnostics, and he's using that to help train these local Africans. So Africa is a place where vehicles get dumped from all over the world, very inferior typically, and the Africans aren't trained. And I couldn't believe my eyes what I saw driving on the road. I come from a transportation background. And I just, I, that was my first time in Africa, and I would never forget it. I just couldn't stop staring at the stuff that you saw driving on the road. And a lot because they have never been trained. No one's trained them how. 
and they didn't know how to go. They didn't, they didn't know how to fix a root problem. And so this brother is there, um, using his knowledge, what he's learned here in the states as a mechanic, using it to teach and train these people. And you know, while the pious um, imam sit on the mosque steps, he's there just infiltrating this city and building relationships and having conversations that are just amazing. That is the shape of the kingdom, using what God has given us for his cause. And I, I many, there's many, 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 many good examples. Uh, my dad was, was somebody who was a good example of this. He's a truck driver, 73 years old, still doing about 2,000 miles per week. And he has his route of, that he typically goes on, and he has people that he speaks to on that route. He's often talking about people he's having gospel conversations with. Just a trucker, but it's amazing what you can do just being a trucker. Many, many other, many, many other things we've talked about here. Um, one of the things, too, that I love about business and, and, and occupation is we can't answer questions that people aren't asking. We can't answer them. So we make ourselves regularly accessible to people in the context of, of just work. And, we, and we're, we're living there. There'll come a time when they'll have enough of a relationship that they'll ask you a question. And, you all, and all of a sudden, you actually realize that these people almost consider them your friend. It's one of the passions I had with our little cafe there in State College is as we thought about an occupation, what can we do? How can we actually get to know people and kind of live among people and make ourselves accessible? And people ask us questions after a while. It takes a long time. People just don't come up to you and ask questions in the first week. That's just, that's not, do you, would you do that? No, we don't do that. It's, it's often through relationship. And so that's what our occupations can do. They can be a tremendous fishing pond. We can be there, um, and when they ha have that burning question, they can be ready to ask us, or they can ask us. And hopefully, we can bring sign of God's new world to birth uh, in our answers. Lastly, we cultivate communities of faithful practice by serving strangers at our tables. Hospitality to strangers. The New Testament is full of hospitality to your local community. But there is definitely um, a teaching that we can bring to bear on how we relate to strangers. And interestingly, um, hospitality, the Greek word is philiozenos, which means love of strangers. How many of you have heard the word um, xenophilia? Xenophobia. Xenophobia. Some of you have. Um, that's sadly um, is, is really how work in our world. People fear strangers, xenophobia, especially to us, yeah, to a stranger or maybe to another ethnicity. There's this like, no way, we're not allowing refugees in, we're not allowing these people in. So there's this xenophobia. But hospitality is opposite of that. It is filioxenoth, love of strangers. And we see Jesus doing that. We're with the woman at the well, many, many, um, even with uh, Matthew, the, the, the tax collector, come follow me, and they went. And they sat down together. He dined with Matthew, the tax collector, and other sinners and publicans, it says there uh, in, in Matthew 9. Beautiful picture of, of Jesus interacting, of in, interacting with, with strangers. To, to neglect to show hospitality to strangers, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, Hebrews 13. Um, I think I have time for a quick little story here. I, uh, so the Eastern people... Uh, people from the east, people from 
the Middle East, people from Asia, really do well at hospitality. We've, we've had the privilege of being invited into different homes there in State College. Um, most recently, it was an, an Iranian family um, into their home. Very welcoming. You, you talk about they, they've taken hospitality on their whole level. Like, it's all planned out. And the meals drug out. And it, it's, it's a real festive time. It's a lot of fun. Um, here, and a year ago, I was in Iraq. And one morning, um, this, the brother we were with there from the expat, he said, hey, I want, I want to take you on a hike. He's like 70 years old. I said, okay, we're going to hike. And he said, we're going to go whip across that mountain and over the next mountain. All right. So we did that. And a big, big long hike. I, I can hardly keep it with a 70-year-old brother. We got, we got way back in. And we're coming down this mountain. And he goes, we're going way over there to that next mountain range. There's an old village there um, that Saddam Hussein bombed. And um, it's actually a neat, old well, neat well, and we're going to we'll get water there and come back. Okay? And I'm looking over there, and I, I'm seeing people moving. And I said, hey, brother, there's, there's somebody over there. I can just see them, just little, little figures way over there. And he goes, oh, it's, it's probably just shepherds. I said, it's a number of them. It's not just a shepherd. I don't even see any sheep. It's just like several people. And, um, and I was, in the back of my mind, I was thinking about some of the realities of some Iranian militias in that area. And uh, one, of the, one of the younger men has said, ah, we really hope that this old brother always comes home because, you know, you get way back in there, you never know what could happen. So I'm like getting really edgy. And um, so we come down the mountain, climb back up, and we're coming around the mountain there. And I'm tuned. Uh, I'm, I'm on edge. And we pop around the corner, and there's these, on here there's the ledge, and there's like six, Iraqi men, uh, or men that looked like them. And against the wall over here is, is, a, is a gun propped. And they had a little fire going, and they're sitting there eating. And I'm just like tuned in on these people. Like, how are they going to respond to me? Like, I'm the stranger here. This could be some rogue guys. Who knows? Anyhow, almost immediately, one of the men jumped up, smiling, walking towards us, and uh, welcome, welcome. And so he, he was one of the men who knew English, a resident. Come, come sit down. Come sit down with us. So we walked over. We're on this ledge, this rock ledge, um, kind of a carpeted lawn that, that the herders, had, had their goats had eaten off. Um, there's these, these old olive trees. And you can look out across the plains of northern Iraq off to the one side. And we sit down at this epic picnic like we've, I've never experienced before. Uh, cloth laid out. There's, they have a little fire going. They have their, their chai, which is big thing to them. Um, they have goat cheese. They have walnuts. Um, oh, and, and naan, which is a, a bread um, I love. And they had all these provisions there. And these men all hopped up. And we sat down. And they served us. They put more chai on and served us. And it was the most, it was the neatest, neatest picture of hospitality I've ever experienced. And it made me think about how, so I was all of a sudden in, in a strange country, in a strange place, in a place that felt dangerous. And all of a sudden, I could relate to how so many of the international people in my town feel. There's been a lot of fear the last couple of years because they never know when they might get kicked out. They can't even go home because if they went home, they couldn't come back. Um, they never quite know, is this American nice to be nice to us or will he, will he hate me? Um, all these different customs. And 
So I could all of a sudden, just looking back, it's just like, wow, what an experience that was. And what a beautiful picture of hospitality. Hopping up, smiling. The one that could speak to in, in, in English was the one talking. All the men just serving, and they were just having a great time. And it was, it was the most epic picnic I've ever, ever had. So serving strangers, let's be like that. Let's not, let's, let's love people around us. Let's be vulnerable. Let's reach out. Um, Rosera, I'm sorry, Rosaria Butterfield has written a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, I highly recommend this book. Uh, she's a Reformed person, so the theology isn't, isn't um, exactly like I like. Um, but the content really is amazing. Uh, she's a person who actually, she was, a, she was a lesbian and hated the Christians and through a local Christian couple reaching out to her, inviting her into their home multiple times, she got to see what it was to follow Jesus and through that became a Christian. And today she's, she's married with a, numerous children and she's doing the same kind of hospitality in her world to those who are outside of the camp, to those who maybe seem threatening. She's using that, stewarding it for the kingdom. And she says this, in post-Christian communities, your words can be only as strong as your relationships. You get that? Your words can only be as strong as your relationships. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenex for the tears that spill. Powerful book. Inspiring to read it. And, you know, I've, I really believe that as, as Christians, we need to begin using our homes again. We need to open up our homes, invite those in around our tables who, who really are not like us. Who really are not like us. Tim Keller planted a church in Manhattan, New York, a very materialistic place. And someone said, Tim, how did you do it? In such a materialistic, intellectual part of the world, how did you plant a church where there's thousands of people that attend it? And he said this, bring people to the place they wish Christianity was true, then tell them it's true. We first need to appeal to people's emotional sense, and then they'll be open to the logical sense. And I thought that was amazing. So he's not doing, he's not doing a ministry with, 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 uh, with, with people who maybe have eighth grade schooling. He's doing ministry with people who have PhDs. I mean, they're the top of the rung in Manhattan, the center of the world uh, economics, at least it used to be. And he's saying, appeal to their emotional sense, like show them the kingdom of God, show them what it looks like to be a Christian. And then when they ask um, about it, why, then tell them why. Tell them, you know, you know be, be, be an apologist at that point. But first of all, we need to bring people to the place they wish Christianity was true. So we better wrap up here. Um, so one of the things, too, just real quickly on this whole idea of serving strangers at a table. So we often think of that as, as home hospitality, which is good. Um, there's also other ways to, to, to do that. Um, I think as a congregation, uh, that's one thing I'm, a, I'm just a really big um, fan of is, is seeing churches regularly have fellowship meals together. 
just as a family eats together, a church needs to eat together, and inviting people in to those meals to show that hospitality. There's something about a meal, sitting together around a meal, that is, um, is very human and, and can bring down walls and it can really show forth the kingdom of God. So finally, and wrap up here, cultivating kingdom communities of faithful practice is not flashy. Um, there's been a lot of programs and things created around this. But in our world today, many people are interested in the programs. They're just inter- interested in a relationship and actually getting to know who you are. Before I listen to you, with Kevin, I want to know who you are. And once I know who you are, then we can share some hard stuff. And that's how people are today. They're not interested in, in just a track for the most part. They're just in relationships. So it's, it's not flashy. It's not a lot of high-tech programs. I know that you all have some good things going, uh, Brother Patrick. What you're doing here is, is beautiful. I know that we need some frameworks and some places to do some of the work that we do. I'm not trying to squash that in one, one bit. Um, but it's really, you know, it's not a building, but it's, it might be a building, but it includes people, human flesh with it that are willing to walk and die with you. So this is hard. This is not easy living out community in these ways. It's difficult. We need to press into it. I want to take you to Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. Uh, and I'll just read that off here. You can turn the Bibles if you'd like. Powerful picture of, of, the, of the end of all this work. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So a great multitude, and that will be worth it all. So as followers of Jesus, as, as people, those of us, uh, there's a quick little love, he who knows his why can bear almost anyhow. Jesus knew his why. For great joy, he went to the cross. With joy, he did these things because he knew what, what he was doing. And as followers of Jesus, if we follow Jesus and participate in the work that he has done in advancing his kingdom, we can have great joy in knowing that someday that we'll, be, we'll get to worship this amazing king. The early church knew their why and won out serving their generations. By God's grace, let's do the same. Let's press into cultivating communities of kingdom. Cultivating kingdom communities of faith and practice. God bless you. We thank you for joining us in this episode. For more information about Sound Faith, to read our blog, donate, or to see videos of the conversations that you hear in this podcast, visit our website at soundfaith.org. We love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message directly through our Facebook page. Thank you again for listening, and we will be back next week with another episode of Sound Faith.